0: All afternoon and, um, and I think it's just good for us to just let's settle ourselves and let's all like we're gonna take like five deep breaths and we're just going to every time we exhale we're just going to tell ourselves like I am here right now. Sound, it's new agey. It's not. You're just getting in touch with your body. This is the space in which you are dwelling right now. It's your breath in my lungs we sing. So let's just together we're just gonna take five deep breaths. Ready? All right. Three more. Two more. Last one. God, help us to be present to you in this space. And when we leave here, help us to be present to one another. A lot of us, Lord, maybe most of us, live in the next moment, live on the, whatever is on the other side of the, live on what we'll do when the email comes in that we're waiting for, or the phone call, or what's waiting for us tomorrow when we get home. And we recognize, God, that we can't actually offer space to another person if we're not in that moment with them. And so we want to be a people who offer space, who make space. So help us, Lord, to be here with you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Henry Nowen writes in his uh, classic book, Reaching Out, The Three Movements of the Spiritual Life, he says, we cannot change the world with a new plan, project, or idea, We cannot even change other people by our convictions, or stories, advice, and proposals. But we can offer space where people are encouraged to disarm themselves, to lay aside their occupations and preoccupations, and to listen with attention and care to the voices speaking within their own center. That's a very profound quote. And when we talk about making space, we're talking about that idea, like what actual you might call it like invisible real estate within myself. Am I actually extending to another person to come and habitat, habitat in? And then also like how in my actual physical space am I carving out places for people to come and define find rest and refuge? Dallas Willard in The Renovation of the Heart writes about um, the three necessary ingredients for change. And he has this great little acronym, VIM. Vision. We need a vision of what we're doing. So that's kind of what we talked about this morning. Why are we doing this? Why are we making space for this? What is God's intention in relationship? And then uh, intention is the decision that only we can make that I want to do this. I want to see meaningful and reconciled relationships become a part of my life, and I recognize that right now they may not be as much as I would like them to be, and so I'm going to, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to Do what needs to be done in order to to move towards that vision. And then the means is what we're talking about this morning. What What are the practical things that you and I can do like tomorrow to begin to make space in our lives and ourselves for meaningful and reconciled relationships? We're going to cover a ton of different areas in which this shows up because it's a really broad idea of making space, as you maybe already can tell. Like There's internal invisible realities. There's very physical, practical realities that has to do with dollars and cents and days on the calendar and seats around the table. And, and all of this actually has to do with what we mean when we say we are committed to being people who make space for meaningful and reconciled relationships. So before that we start into what are things that we can do to make space, I want to start with this teaching from Jesus in Luke chapter 14. I love this text so much. He says, when you give a luncheon, Jesus is very into hospitality. He's like Martha Stewart of his day. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors in case they may be able to invite you in return, and then you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, there's a whole bunch to unpack in that that we don't have time to unpack today. Maybe you guys can find space tomorrow to do that. Um... But what I wanted to pull out of this was this idea that Jesus from the beginning understood that what we're talking about when we say making space for all kinds of people, different kinds of people, people with different convictions than you, people with different lifestyles than you, people with uh, different uh, social realities than you, different marital realities than you, different financial realities than you, different political convictions than you. Jesus was in his day and today to this day is talking about something that is deeply countercultural. We all know that we love to find our tribe and to live within the echo chamber of that tribe, and to let it reinforce and galvanize our own perspective on the world. And as long as we're in that echo chamber, then we're like, sure, we're good. And Jesus is saying, don't, don't, don't bring the people into your life that are only going to be able to reinforce and repay you for what you're doing. Find ways to make space for people, essentially, who cannot, who cannot repay you. So I want to talk about four things that we can do to make space. There are four different directions in which we make space today. And some of them are really practical and some of them are really like in your head. Um, but I want to start with this. Make space, making space in my family. I know some of you in here, you're like, I don't have family. You've already lost me. I under- not all of these are going to apply to everyone. I, in fact, I, well, let me just preface it by saying this. There are probably a lot of people in here, because I, you know, I see you all, like, it's a young church. There's a lot of people in here that do not need to be convinced of the, re- of, of the idea, of the necessity for meaningful relationships in your life. But you feel on the outside of them because you're in a different stage of life than everyone else around you. Uh, As a pastor for almost 20 years, I spent a lot of time sitting with single people, in particular, unmarried people. And they would say to me again and again these words. They would say, we're not looking to be hosted. We're just looking to be a part of something. The problem that we have in the church today is not a new problem. But it is still a problem today, and that is that we have continued in this long tradition in the church of idolizing and centralizing nuclear family as the prime sort of target, aim, culture, whatever, that the entire thing is built around. Now, a lot of really amazing incredible and genuine efforts have been made by Trinity and many churches around the country to curtail that. And yet we still find ourselves in a culture in which it's easy if you find yourself to be unmarried, especially if you're older and unmarried, to feel like somehow you don't fit into the the space, into the ethos of what this thing is all about. But the New Testament vision of humanity was revolution in its day because Jesus had this idea that what he was here to form was not a whole bunch of nuclear families, but one large singular spiritual family in which everyone was a participant and no one was excluded. Nobody didn't have a seat at the table. We talked about it this morning. Everyone has a room on the hall. You know, no one's out back in the shed. Like we're all together. We all belong with one another. And yet, so many in our church, probably so many of you, find yourself very aware of how disconnected you feel, simply because every time something major happens in your life, you don't know who to call. Or you find yourself having yet another uh, lonely meal together because someone had to cancel plans because their kid got sick, or because work went long, or because they're tired. And those are all excuses I've used, by the way, so I'm not shaming anyone. Those are all things that are real, that's real life. The New Testament vision of humanity was a revolution in its day because Jesus said, no, we actually belong to one another. There are no longer boundary lines around family in the same way that there once was. But in our day, the centrality and idolatry around nuclear family, especially in religious circles, continues to push against Jesus' higher ideal for people. And those who pay the highest price for this idolatry are the unmarried people in our churches. Single, celibate, widowed, divorced. Um... I, uh, I've cared about this for a really long time. It's been like a passion for me. And um, at Emmanuel, or Trinity Eastside at the time, we did a lot of work to try to make this really, like, this is, we're going to be different. We're going to be a place in which spiritual family is, like, a real thing, and nobody is alone. And everyone, like, goes on, people, people invite, like, people to go on vacation with them, and, like, no one wakes up on Christmas morning alone. And, like, we just wanted this, like, vision of, like, what could be, and then, you, you know what happened in March of 2020? This thing happened, and everyone went to their own place. And I spent, this is not an exaggeration, the next six months on Zoom calls with crying single people who hadn't been touched in half a year. Because we didn't know what to do, and we were all scared. We were washing bags of Doritos. We didn't know what was going on. We were scared, okay? Maybe there was a better way to do it. There probably was a better way to do it. But what it exposed was this reality in the church, which is like, if you have a family, you have a people, like a baseline. And if you don't, and I just want to say to you, friends, Jesus has a different idea for this place, for Trinity, for the church, for the American church, in which those boundary lines are dropped. And the first thing we have to do is if you're like me and you're one of the people with family and kids is you have to recognize that you're going to need to actually create space in your family. You're going to need to go to HomeGoods and buy an extra chair if you don't have enough around the table. You're going to need to carve out space to bring a person on vacation with you. Not a charity project. They have a blessing for your family. Like let them come and join you. But this is the thing that the church does that's so countercultural is we don't divide ourselves up anymore in life stages. they like, oh, you have kids, and so therefore you fit over here, and oh, you don't have kids. So but we still do this today. If you're single and young in here, then, then the assumption is, is that, well, you're just not married yet, which indicates that we actually still have as a central idea that really the aim of life is to be married and have kids, which shows that we're still missing it. We're still missing Jesus's vision for humanity. So those of us in here who have space, we need to make space. Or have families, we need to make space. And that's going to mean bringing people into my life when there's still socks on the floor, under the coffee table, with golden retriever fur all matted around it, and being okay with it, and homework on the table and dirty dishes, and let a person come in and eat leftovers with us for the second night in a row. Because actually, that's what real life is. And when we try to do some sort of artificial thing, it doesn't work. We need to make space. Part of making space for meaningful and reconciled relationships is going to mean those of us who have families bringing people into that space, and those of us who don't have families but want to be a part of that being willing to enter into that space and become part of the family. Similar to this, we need to be making space in our calendar. Uh, This is like pretty obvious, I think, but a a lot of us are overcommitted. And so when we talk about making space what we're talking about is sacrificing things that are currently on the calendar so that this can be on the calendar really practical so you like you look at your calendar for the week the way we make space when our calendars are booked is we push things off the calendar and we prioritize this in its place and we say I'm going to make whatever it is neighborhood groups like Weekly gatherings with this group from my church, whatever, my neighborhood. I'm going to prioritize this and make this a part of my weekly rhythm. Um, It lives on the calendar. Otherwise, it doesn't exist. We all know that. The calendar, as Peterson said, is sacrosanct. I need to be making space um, on my calendar. And yet, and I want to say this: I we must learn to make space within our limits. So everything I've said so far, if you're like me and you're kind of like a like charge-the-hill kind of person, um, just an exhausting person to be married to, by the way, but if you're like me and you're sort of a charge-the-hill, then you hear a big vision about a thing, and you hear someone say, we need to make space, and you go, yeah, what do I need to chop off the chopping block? What do I need to do to, in order to, uh, in order to, to make this a, a reality? And can I just tell you what it's like to be um, married to your total opposite? So, um, or, or to have a roommate who's your total opposite, you know? Um, so I have been, uh, this, this, uh, August will be 20 years with my wife, which feels crazy. I must be old. And thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, it's been easy. Um, so this, this summer is going to be 20 years of, of, of marriage with, with Rebecca. And I was a very high extrovert when we got married, um, back in 2003. And Rebecca was a, was a very high introvert. Now over the years, I become less extroverted and more introverted and more of a homebody. Rebecca has become more of an introvert than she already was, which which means that for for 20 years, there's been a friction in our desires for what it means to have relationships as a part of our life. And what I did for 15 years is I assumed that the the good godly thing to do was to encourage my wife to be an extrovert. You know, because relationships are good, right? They're God's idea for humanity, it's at the center of creation. You know, I can wax philosophical and make it go, oh, that does make sense. But I really, I was just exhausting her. And she was so, she was so tired and probably a little resentful. And also, um, I deserved it because I was being really selfish. Um, one of the things that Eugene Peterson said, not Peterson, Pete Cazero. There's a Pete in there. That's why I got mixed up. <laughs> Pete Cazero talks about learning to embrace... The limits that God has on your life is grace. Learning to receive them as a gift. So it's been, it took 15 years, and I'm still learning to receive it as a gift, but I'm learning to receive the limits that my wife's introversion and her need for quiet, and if if I could see her right now, you know, she is holding a cup of tea with a blanket on her lap. That's what she's doing right now. But to receive that as a gift to me, and by the way, it is a gift to me, and I'm learning that. All of us in here have limits of some kind, whether it's the person we live with, the person we're married to. It could be I have a child with special needs and it puts limits around my life. It could be that I'm coming out of a very traumatic season and I'm struggling with depression and PTSD, or I'm coming out of a season of addiction and I actually need to put some limits around what I do with other people so that I don't relapse. It could be that I've been actually wounded in really severe ways and so I have to be cautious in how I enter into my next relationship because I'm still actually carrying around that wounding. And all of these things, friends, are not chosen by us. They are just a part of how we live our life, and I just want to give you permission. And I want to say all the things we're like talking about, like making space and carving it and doing. Yes, but also no. Do it within the limits in which God has put around your life. I'm not talking about overcommitted schedules that we did to ourselves. I'm talking about when you find yourself at the mercy of an aging parent that you're taking care of, or a chronically ill person in your life that you just never know when the and like that's a limit on your life. And learn rather than to resent it. to to, to try to ignore it, to see it as what it is, which is a grace. God is putting boundary lines around my life. Those boundary lines, David says, fall in pleasant places. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places, David says. And that is how we're meant to see the limits that are in our life right now. Probably some of you need to be thinking about that like tonight or whatever? Like, how have I actually been resistant to? Because a lot of us, instead of receiving them as gift, we're like uh, velociraptors, and we keep banging up against the fence, always at a different place, trying to find a weakness in the perimeter. You guys know what I'm talking about? This movie came out in 1993, so a lot of you weren't alive. But, but you, know, you know, Muldoon, the, the, the game warden, he's like, they always, they're looking for a weakness. He's like, they remember, you know? And, and that's what a lot of us do with boundary lines, is we try to find a way around them. And God just says, let them be a grace to you. Receive it as a grace. So when we talk about making space, we are talking about the lived reality that you're in right now, okay? Um, I talked about my story this morning. The last year and a half, this was not a time for me to be in a neighborhood group. This was not a time for me to be in a story group. That was the, that was, this was where I was in my life. Live within the limits of your moment, but understand that God's intention for you is still to find a few people who will go deeply with you in the play-by-play of your daily life. And then finally, I just want to say as the last one, learn to make space within my worldview. Uh, Jesus did an incredible thing uh, in the first century. He pulled together a group of 12 opposites and made them a community. If you look at the description of the apostles, you see that they were government bureaucrats and religious zealots. Uh, they were married and single, uh, young and old. There were deeply religious and orthodox people, and then people who were totally outside the religious system of, of his day. And these people did not just all like, attend the same seminary class and then go home to their families. These people lived together. They ate every meal together. They slept in the same houses and on the same ground near one another for three years. That is a miracle. Jesus from the beginning tells us we are not going to break off into our tribes, friends. We need to find a way in order to to live alongside one another in community, different races, different social social realities, different financial and economic realities. We need to learn to make space. Jesus looked at this group of, of people on the last night of his life and he says, by the way you love one another, the world will know that you are mine, that you are my disciples. One of the things that's so foundational to the community in Jesus' imagination is diversity. The diversity of opinions and experiences, levels of maturity, resources, and abilities. This is what God is doing here. Which is just to encourage you. This is, by the way, this is why neighborhood groups in Trinity uh, and and in Emmanuel are structured around geography and not around life stage, which they used to be. Because we actually want to intentionally, to the best of our ability, um, program this. Like to have diversity reflected in where people live rather than just, you know, all the, if you're single in your mid to late 20s, you know, or whatever, all hanging out in the same group. What God does through Christ, Paul tells us, is he breaks down division walls. We live in a deeply divided uh, time. If I hear one more person say, we've never been more divided. And yet, it does feel kind of true, right? Like, we are so deeply divided as a society. Outside the walls of the church, everyone is breaking into factions, and everyone's pointing out all the reasons why you're wrong, and I'm right, and I'm better than you, and, and so on. And inside the church, those dividing walls of hostility are torn down, and we are called to be one people who understand and love one another as ourselves. So how do we do that, just in closing? First of all, let's understand that most of the things that divide us outside the walls of this church, and that can also divide us inside the walls of this church, are what could be considered gray issues. They're not areas of prime doctrine. They're gray issues. They're areas of conviction um, I saw a stat recently that re- this, this was this, like, recently, uh, this kind of, uh, I, I butchered that. Um, <laughs> in America, parents are more in favor now to their kids marrying folks from other faiths than folks from other political party affiliations. Fant- Do you think that that's made its way into the church? Maybe, you know, I think it has. So if that is like the world in which we're living in, where it's like, I'd rather you marry, you fill in the blank, than a maggot, whatever it is, then, then there's something wrong. There's something wrong in, in, with, in the church, if that's, if that's true in my heart. Gray issues do not have to tear us apart. This is how John Mark Homer describes gray issues. He says they're morally neutral they're biblically ambiguous, and they're culturally controversial. Some of you are saying, uh, there's nothing morally neutral about uh, a uh, political party that does, and I'm just saying, no, not here. We're not going to do that. Uh, the, most of the things that divide us outside the walls of this church are actually these things. They're ambiguous, they are, and yet we are, all the controversy is around it. Now, many of us who live in urban areas, we think of ourselves as the open-minded and enlightened people, and yet we can be just as fundamentalist as anyone else. We can look down our nose at people just as easily. Probably all of us have some group of people that we see on the news in some direction or another and we think, oh. So how do we do this? How do we make space within our worldview? I wanna give you a few things. We're gonna go through them one at a time, briefly. Can we put the first one up? There we go. First thing, this is most important. Enter without disdain or superiority. So when you have that thing and you're like, I think I'm better than this person because they believe blank. That is, that's we talked about this That's the voice of the accuser, not the voice of our, our father. So that that is the first thing that is like, I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna enter instead um, with curiosity. I'm going to be curious. The second thing we need to do is we need to take the time to understand. Can I just give you a little thing that I don't remember where I first heard it, but I love it and I've thought I've said it a, a thousand times since then? People make sense. People make sense. You make sense. The things you think and believe in this world, they make sense. If I knew you, if I'd lived as many years as you lived in your body on your shoes, you would make sense to me too. But when I'm on the outside of you, you don't make sense. So take the time to understand, because people make sense. They're not idiots, and we're the smart ones. They actually um, are deeply consistent. Or, you know, there is as much cognitive dissonance in them as there is in us. Thirdly, Be willing to learn, willing to change, and willing to be wrong. Sometimes I bring a thing into a conversation and I discover that actually I'm the one who has something to learn from you, that I'm not the superior one. Fourthly, expect to be misunderstood. When we're talking about things that we disagree upon, Expect to be misunderstood and then don't get defensive about it. You know how great it is if you know you know Mike Tyson says everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Plan to get punched in the face and have a plan. So when you walk into a conversation where you know it's gonna be contentious, assume you're gonna be misunderstood. And if you're prepared for it, maybe you won't punch back. Maybe you won't get super defensive. Expect to be misunderstood. They're gonna misunderstand you, you going to misunderstand them. But finally, and I love this one. I, I don't remember where I heard this. I'm not taking credit for this. I love this thing I wrote. (laughs) Be willing to honor the pace of God in their lives and don't try to hurry it up. Sometimes it may turn out that a person really, their opinion about something actually is like, it's not really in fitting with the kingdom of God. I think we could all think of things right now you're like, yeah, I mean, this is, this is culturally controversial, and maybe it's a little morally ambiguous, but, I mean, it does seem to pretty bang up against the, the kingdom of God, and for sure, for sure. Let's be patient with one another. Now, I want to be a person who is always the most generous towards another person. We, we have enough people in the world who are constantly calling up everyone short and figuring out why they're wrong, why they're inferior, why we're better than them, like let's, let's, let's remember that what Jesus does towards us is, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 2, that he, he considered others more important than himself. That that is actually what we are called to walk in. That one of the ways that we make space in our hearts for people is we consider them more important than ourselves. And Jesus shows us the way to do that. Paul tells us that the way that we do that is by considering him who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he submitted himself to death, even death on a cross. In other words, according to the New Testament writers, the way that you and I lean into this very difficult, very controversial idea where I make space for people that I disagree with, the way that I lean into it is by leaning more deeply back against the crucified body of Jesus, who considered me, you, more important than himself and then calls us to walk in his ways. Um, let's, let's pray together. Jesus, we, um, those are heavy things. This feels heavy in here right now. <clears throat> um, sometimes, Lord, your teaching is heavy, and yet we remember that when you compare it against the world, that you say your burden is light, your yoke is easy, that there's actually something incredibly freeing about what you're calling us to that even though it might feel like a lot, that when we compare it to the great burdens that so many of us are carrying in this room right now that are put upon us by whatever, that you really do, Lord, lead us in a good and gentle way. So help us have the faith to trust you and to walk in that, to walk in your steps, and to be people, Lord, who diligently, proactively make space within ourselves and within our lives for meaningful and reconciled relationships. And we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.